My name is Alice. I worked for the Umbrella Corporation at a secret high-tech facility called The Hive. A giant underground laboratory developing experimental viral weaponry. But there was an incident. The virus escaped and everybody died. Trouble was, they didn't stay dead. Welcome to Now Playing's retrospective series of Resident Evil. You're all going to die down here. Hosted by Player One, Justin. That's right. Star power, bitches. Player Two, Stuart. Congratulations. <laughs> Officially a badass. And Player Three, Arnie. They're stars. They're the best. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a Resident Evil movie review, leading up to Resident Evil The Final Chapter. You are going to be in for the fight of your lives. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers, mild language, and zombie dogs. This is humanity's last stand. The beginning of the end. Listener discretion is advised. Waiting for a written invitation? Today we're discussing Resident Evil Afterlife, starring Mia Jovovich, Ali Larder, Kim Coates, Sean Roberts, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. This is the now playing co-host who will podcast in the afterlife, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is Justin. Three years after Extinction, we finally get the film they wanted to call Afterlife. And I remember being actually pretty excited when this movie came out. Don't get me wrong, I didn't see it in theaters. I didn't even see it on video until last year. But it was 3D, shot in 3D back when that was still a novelty. They even used James Cameron's avatar system, the cameras, the cinematographer who he worked with in Ghosts of the Deep or some of those underwater museum films he did. So just from a technological and visual perspective, this movie had me excited. From a plot perspective, well, I didn't see it, so not that excited. (laughs) (laughs) You're missing the big hook, Arnie. Yeah, was it the promise of hundreds of Mia Jovoviches? Oh, no. No, it's funny. Neither of you are, are missing the big one, right? After life or after career, it's the return of Paul W.S. Anderson to the director chair. That is true. He was so involved in the previous two movies as a writer, as a producer, as a stalker on the set, <laughs> that I honestly forgot he didn't direct the previous ones. I actually saw Death Race and thought it was pretty lackluster. That was what he had done between Alien vs. Predator. I never did see Drift, the TV pilot he did. I don't even know what that is, but sounds like he was drifting. Yeah, it's (laughs) guessing an unaired TV pilot he directed the year after AVP, and then he did Death Race, and then he came back to the well. But I think there's something else that went on to bring him back, other than career desperation. He fancies himself a George Lucas. Like, you know, let it go a little bit, and then come back and take total control. Is that his M.O.? Well, in the first movie, he met Mia Jovovich. In the third movie, he hooked up with Mia Jovovich, 
and they got married, and now this is their first film as a married couple. Oh, I assume that was already playing out really since the first one wrapped, but it was, they, okay, they weren't an item officially until the third movie. Right, I know, that's, hmm. I think that now he had an interest in going where his wife went. I mm, know, and uh, <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. Keeping an eye on her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did the same thing. I was. I keep trying to give this lady a break. I'm like, has she ever been good with a director she wasn't sleeping with? You know, she worked for years with Luke Besson, Fifth Element, and that stupid Joan of Arc movie that he made her do. And she's just, to me, always a beautiful woman, but just does not come across the screen as anything other than a bubblehead. I wanted to see her look intelligent and strong in a movie. I went to the movie that she made in between Extinction and Afterlife, The Fourth Kind. You've heard about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well, guess what? There's a fourth one. I actually remember that movie coming out. I, I... Oh, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw it and blocked it out until Stuart just brought it up. <laughs> just like the characters in that movie. It's about a bunch <laughs> of people that experience aliens. I think they get fondled by them or something, and then their mind gets blanked. So, yeah, the movie does to have that quality as well. I saw it, and it was only a couple days ago, and I'm getting a little fuzzy on details. I'll say this. It's much better than Ultraviolet, and Mia Jovovich is... It's strange. She's playing a psychiatrist who may or may not have done something nefarious and is blaming aliens for the crime. And it's mixed with actual footage of the real psychiatrist. Uh, it's one of those real life, you know, stories. Yes, that was the hook. Yeah, that she looks nothing like her. There's this dowdy therapist. And then they'll sometimes cut and it'll be Mia on the same screen. They'll have a split screen repeating the same lines and trying to decide if indeed aliens, owls, or her own madness has infected this sleepy little town. Oh, God. I did repress this thing, but it's all coming back <laughs> like a bad memory. <laughs> you know what? I, I, like I said, after Ultraviolet and really Fifth Element and a lot of things that she's made, I actually consider it a higher caliber one. It's completely forgettable, obviously, but it's not an embarrassment, which to me is uh, a step up for her. Are you saying all the Resident Evil movies have been an embarrassment? I thought she's been one of the high points. Yes, you have. <laughs> See, I wouldn't go so far as to blame any of the Resident Evil directly on her. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, what I think is that she is a model that is asked to do flips, and she has been very gung-ho about it. Like, I like her enthusiasm. I, again, I watch those behind-the-scenes vignettes, and I think, yeah, man, if only this were as good as she thinks it is, <laughs> this would be a whole lot of fun. But she is always just, you know, cheerleading everyone on the production, and I was there. Let me tell you guys, Comic-Con 2010... I was in Hall H when the entire cast and crew came out to show footage for this movie. And while I had never seen this movie, I will never forget that experience. Although it has very little to do with anything that they presented and a lot more to do with the fight that broke out the row behind me. 
Tell me you didn't wait in line for Hall H for the Resident Evil panel, though. Oh, how could you not? It wasn't for <laughs> it wasn't for Resident Evil, but it was one of those things where, like, in the morning the line was like five miles long, and then by midday, it for some weird reason, like in the afternoon, it was a relatively short line. I had nowhere that I wanted to be. I was Comic Con'd out. I didn't want to see any more booths or any more anything really. I was I was happy to sit down, and I just got in. And no, the big draw that day was it was the first time that any they were going to have the entire avengers cast come out and you know do photo ops and what have you that they had finally you know cast everyone and that was the big deal so there was also a paul panel which you know i i liked simon pegg and scorny weaver was there and harrison ford came out to uh promote what was that movie? Cowboys versus Aliens. There we go. Oh, I couldn't even boy. remember the name of the movie. I'm like, no one remembers the movie, but everyone's very excited because he had never graced his presence at Comic-Con before. And I've never heard a louder sound than when Mr. Harrison Ford stepped out into that Hall H. It was deafening. But no, they, they were the warm-up act. They were as I was being seated because there wasn't a lot of seating in Hall H and we were being stuck wherever the people could find us. And there was a spot where I landed in the spot right behind me, and I didn't really pay attention to the gentleman that sat down, but while they were showing this zombie footage, which looked absolutely ridiculous to me, I heard this rustling, and a voice said, Don't you touch me! And I, I turn around, and I thought it was cosplay. There was a pale man with blood spurting out of his eye, <laughs> waving his hands around. I thought, okay, they're really into this. It looks dumb as hell to me. Little did I know that this was like the Comic-Con Ultimate moment, that one nerd had taken a pencil to the eye of another one because he touched his Harry Potter exclusive merchandise. And I immediately got up and ran away, as several other people did around us. It was disgusting and vile, and I just thought, yeah, I was done. I actually never went to Comic-Con again. I just... I was so grossed out by the idea of two adult men going at each other and gouging out eyes over merchandise that I just ugh, put a whole pall of disgust over the whole event. And needless to say, I it colored my perspective about all of the events that I saw later that day, including Resident Evil Afterlife. Well, Justin, as you and I have both fought for our places in the Hasbro toy buying line, I think now we need to wear safety goggles. Yeah. That was, it was crazy. I mean, of course, you know, people, I mean, and it encourages that. We're supposed to go crazy. You're supposed to be bigger than life than anybody else and be the super fan. But what, like I said, I couldn't even tell what was going on. I couldn't conceive that this was not something staged and funny to see that level of violence right behind you. It was just, yeah, look it up. I mean, it did end up making the news. And I think the guy was, you know, hauled away in handcuffs and, and who knows what became of him, but it certainly was a turning point for me and Comic-Con. Wow. Just as a side note, I think that was my very first experience with Comic-Con was hearing that story from Arnie as you had just got off the phone telling him. Because I had just <laughs> arrived like the oh, day well. before. That yeah. was my first Comic-Con and I was late because of a funeral. Oh, wow. I met up with Arnie and Marjorie and Arnie was like, oh my God, Stuart just like saw a guy get stabbed in the eye with a pencil. I'm like, what? <laughs> Yeah. Where am I? What's going on here? Yeah, exactly. I thought it was going to Comic-Con. I didn't realize that, 
Yeah, I'm on the path to hell. Well, it was the director of Mortal Kombat, so... Yeah, again! <laughs> Finish him! You can make jokes! I thought they, I thought it was two fools really getting into it and playing a prank. It really took a few squirts of blood before I realized, wow, that is no squib. Wow. I wonder if this paints uh, a pal over the way you see this movie all these years later. <laughs> well, like I said, I've never forgotten it. I remember exactly the scene that they showed. Well... How did you guys see it? Did either of you watch in 3D? Because I actually did. I broke out the 3D glasses to watch it at home in 3D. And I'll just say right now, worth it. They showed 3D in Hall H. And what I saw was the bathroom scene with the two girls going after the guy with the axe. But no, I did not watch this movie. I don't have that set up for my television. So no, I I just watched a DVD. And I, I guess this is as good a place as any for me to state my utter distaste for the format of 3D. Like I avoid it like the plague. I've tried it a few times and it's just always ended up in me getting a visual headache, taking off my glasses and watching the rest of the movie blurry. And every right. time somebody comes out with something saying, oh, the technology's better, you gotta try this one, same experience. So I'm, I'm done even trying it until they can figure out how to do it without glasses. Oh, okay. So you actually, medically, something goes on with you. I've known a few people like that. They say it gives them headaches. Yep, pretty much every time. Wow. So you won't be seeing the new movie in, the, in this format. <laughs> I hope you can find a 2D screening. Since I'm the only one who saw it in 3D, I will just say this is amazing 3D. The depth is great. It has some of the eye-popping stuff where things are poking out at you that I feel a lot of 3D movies try to avoid, but I think it's just fun as hell. And it added something to this film visually that I can't explain. It was done using the Avatar system. It's Avatar good. You know, I, why wouldn't it be? Paul W.S. Anderson has been ripping off Cameron and Aliens for his entire career. I, I'm glad that he at least got a hold of the technology and, and tried to fulfill. He could make a movie as good as Avatar, I'm convinced. <laughs> I am too. I've... <laughs> I gave Avatar not recommend, so he, he's obviously made movies better than that in my mind. And James Cameron did say Resident Evil is his favorite guilty pleasure movie. Whatever that means. I think in some ways it's an ego stroke since it's such a ripoff of a movie he made. But just know if you have a 3D television and a PlayStation 4 or a 3D Blu-ray player, pop on those glasses for this one. I was astonished how much it mattered. I did also watch it in 2D, and it really lost something. <laughs> the 3D-ness. I mean, even just seeing it in 2D, you could see that there were specific shots that Absolutely. were made to yes, come out I, at you. I mean, they stuck out. Yeah, I do feel like this movie has a visual look that is, yeah, you know when things would be coming at you, and it seems made for the 3D format. Maybe that was the only reason they made it. I don't know. I got questions about it, but... In order to get answers, Arnie, you got to give him the plot. It's some period of time after the third film, and as soon as we finish our <laughs> plot summary, I want to debate that. Mm. <laughs> but we open with Alice, played by Mia Jovovich, and her clones, also all played by Mia Jovovich, attacking the Umbrella Corporation headquarters in Tokyo, with her primary target being Chairman Albert Wesker, the sunglasses-wearing evil dude played by Sean Roberts. But Wesker has a trap set, and he flies off in his plane while the headquarters blows up and kills all of the Alice clones. The real Alice is waiting on the plane. 
Wesker injects her with an antivirus that takes away all of her T-cell superpowers, but Wesker's plane then crashes, and somehow non-superpowered Alice survived. (laughs) And the superpowered guy is, I don't know, she doesn't even check his pulse, I don't know. (laughs) Did we mention that Paul W.S. Anderson is also returning to write the script? (laughs) As he has with all of them. So Alice then decides to go to Alaska to try to catch up with all the people who we forgot about before the end credits rolled in the last movie. But... In case you didn't care like I didn't, they were headed to Arcadia, where they were promised infection-free civilization. But in Alaska, she doesn't find the promised paradise. Only Claire Redfield, again played by Ollie Lauder, mind-controlled by a robot spider on her chest. Alice removes the spider, but now Claire has amnesia, so the two fly down the coast looking for life. They finally see people in a destroyed Los Angeles. Hold up in a prison, surrounded by zombies, but awaiting rescue are former NBA star Luther West, played by Boris Kojo, former movie producer and general dick Bennett Sinclair, played by Kim Coates, (laughs) Bennett's personal assistant Kim Yong, played by Norman Young, Aussie Crystal Waters, she's named Waters because she's an accomplished swimmer, get it, played by Casey Barnfield, mechanic Angel Ortiz, played by Sergio Perez Manchetta, and Pervy Wendell, played by Casey Barnfield. They also have locked up in the prison Chris Redfield, Claire's brother, played by Wentworth Miller. They all thought Alice and Claire were sent from Arcadia, which in fact wasn't a city, but a boat going down the west coast looking for survivors. Chris is sprung when he reveals he knows a way to get out of the prison and to Arcadia, which is currently off the coast of LA, happily in sight of this prison. As zombies break down the wall, the survivors try to make their escape. Desperate, Bennett kills Angel and steals Alice's plane to go to Arcadia. And Wendell, Kim, and Crystal are killed by zombies. But Alice, Luther, Chris, and Claire make it to Arcadia, which they discover is not a sanctuary, but a trap by the Umbrella Corporation. They've been locking up the survivors that they find. But Alice wakes up. Kmart, her favorite character from the last film. (laughs) It's a blue light special. (laughs) She was one of the survivors trying to get to Alaska. Also on the boat is Wesker. He survived the plane crash and has now taken Bennett as an employee, a slave, a sub. I don't know. He's a henchman now. Also, Wesker has injected himself with the T-virus, but he has trouble containing it. So he believes if he consumes Alice, he will gain control. So Alice and Wesker fight. Wesker flees in his plane, and he tries to pull the same trick he did at the beginning, destroying the Arcadia. But somehow Alice knew about this and got the explosive off of the Arcadia and onto Wesker's plane, blowing it up. And Alice wakes up all the survivors and sends out a message that Arcadia is a place of sanctuary for any humans left. But then an aerial attack begins, led by Jill Valentine, again played by Sienna Guillory, with a spider on her chest as credits roll. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of questions. I'm biting my tongue so many times you're talking in this plot, but that's why we have the rest of the show, of course, to talk about why that didn't make sense. (laughs) I'll say I listened to the commentary for this, and man... I learned so much about 3D technology, and Paul W.S. Anderson is a technician. He's a gearhead for film. He talks about using his wide-angle lenses. He talks about the magic of filming in 3D, 
doing things like raindrops that post-conversion just can't do, how all the action was staged to give depth, which you normally don't do with a 2D film. He didn't talk a whole lot about the plot. He's just like, I thought this would be cool. I thought that would be cool. So <laughs> I think the answer as to why things happen, you can ask. I've listened to that. I've seen all the behind the scenes features, but 99% chance the answer is Paul thought it would be cool. Sure. And you know, some of it is. I'll go ahead and say, I love the idea of starting in Tokyo. That is where the Resident Evil games began. They call it Biohazard. And so they actually kind of, I think as an homage, there's a couple homages to the video games. And this opener is, is kind of one of them. We see it break out on the streets of busy Tokyo. Now, when is this? <laughs> I know what they said, but it doesn't match up the timeline of the movie last week, which was happening seven years in the future, I think. But this is like four years later. I did the math. The first two movies took place pretty much back to back. And then the next movie was five years later. In the commentary, what Anderson said, but I didn't get it from the movie, is that the breakout is happening in Tokyo at the same time as the breakout is happening in Raccoon City. So during Resident Evil 2, or I guess they called it Apocalypse. But I don't know how the infection would have gotten to Tokyo out of Raccoon City so quickly. And also, mm -mm. when we get to this main plot, it says four years later. Is that four years after the outbreak in Tokyo? Or is that four years after extinction, thus making this nine years after the original movie? I'm a little confused. Yeah, nothing's covered in dirt in Japan. It's all pretty much still the high-tech Blade Runner world you would expect it to be, just less populated. And there's also plants we're going to see in Alaska and down the coast. So Yeah, well, Alaska was the sanctuary, right? I mean, I think it's supposed to be matching up with that time frame. What they said is, you know, it may be a case of just someone not doing a thorough check about what Anderson wrote the last time, or they referred <laughs> to a different draft. I mean, continuity is not this series' strong point. Yeah, and honestly, I think it's just a way to set the scene as Tokyo, so why not show how it began in Tokyo as well, since we saw how it began in America. Now flash forward to current time, and Alice and her clones are about to attack Umbrella. I, I think that's all that went into it. I would tend to agree, and the breakout in Tokyo, I do love. The raindrops in slow motion look amazing. You've got... I hate to say it, but like your stereotypical anime girl with like the leggings and everything standing in the rain and she's just very young, very slight. And then she goes zombie and starts attacking those around her. It kind of reminded me of Stephen King's book Cell, where people just on the street start getting attacked by a teenage girl. Yeah, I mean, what was surprising about it was, I thought it was going to be Mia. I mean, they spend so much time teasing her form without showing her face. I'm like, come on, it always begins with her. I mean, we know it's her, and then it's not. And again, what I appreciate about this scene was that they were trying to acknowledge where the game came from and get us into the headquarters, which we have another 3D model. We are going underground once again. I'm guessing this looked really cool in 3D. Yeah, it did. I mean, the pullout from Tokyo was really awesome. The underground model, I mean, everything had good depth. It was filmed in 3D. These were deep sets. There were some CGI extensions. But yeah, it looked pretty cool. And we get to see Albert Wesker play Darth Vader, killing his own henchmen. And... <laughs> 
Yeah, this whole scene was a lot of fun, a good way to kick off the movie. And it also pays off where the last movie left us, which was looking at just a ton of Alice clones. And with this series, I couldn't honestly be sure whether or not they would even follow that thread through into the next movie or just completely drop it and just be like, eh, whatever, that's that's the other movie. This is the new movie. But yeah, I was surprised to see that they actually went through with hundreds of Alice's running around and being kind of kick-ass. It's a little passe, right? Matrix Reloaded. It's been a while. I mean, this movie came out in 2010, and so they're eight years behind the curve. They've always got to grab onto some old movie, but Matrix is a good one to go to here. Ghost in the Shell, all of that. I do think that there is, yeah, just a certain level of excitement. When I saw this scene, I had a couple different reactions. One, this is so not my kind of movie. (laughs) Two... When you don't have it in 3D, some of this stuff looks very, very hokey. And three, this series is now doing what exactly what it needs to be doing. Something that I felt with the last two, that they were experiments that had gone awry. Say what you will about Anderson. I do think that he directs his scripts better than other people do. Maybe it's because he understands them or he understands what was cool about them. And I think he captures that in this opening. Yeah, there was a moment during Extinction on the commentary where he turns to the producer and is like, that wasn't in my script. Why was that changed? So perhaps he distills himself better than somebody else who second guesses him. But I'm not quite sure what to take of this opening. I do find it fun. I think all the Alice clones are really interesting. And Wesker, I think that they've improved him a little bit. They did recast him from the previous movie. And this guy comes off a little less Zach Morris. (laughs) But you're trapped by a video game design of a guy in a suit with slicked back hair and wearing sunglasses at night. So, sorry, Corey Hart, you're just always going to be a little bit douchey and not in a good, evil way. Yeah, it's a it's a Agent Smith, right? I mean, the Matrix vibe just carries through the performance. It's so stilted that, I again, I don't know. The fact that some of these shots are going to look kind of hokey with bad acting, I, I almost think in some ways it brilliantly recreates the stiffness of video game Interscenes. I mean, I, I do think that on some level, this movie, more than any other, looks like a video game come to life. And that includes this bad acting. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with that. For the first time, this does feel like it's actually emulating what it's like to play a video game or trying to, to a certain degree. I don't know if I'd go ahead and give them that much credit that that's the feel that they were going for, but maybe. I don't know. I think they were. By this point, it was funny, the tail had started wagging the dog. With Resident Evil 4 and Resident Evil 5, all of a sudden, we weren't in horror movies anymore. We were in action movies, and Mm -hmm. you weren't playing just a cop with a gun running out of bullets. Now you're playing a high-kicking ninja sharpshooter trying to save the president's daughter? Yes, that is the plot of Resident Evil 4. (laughs) So, it did go international and it has had some great success but to me as a player it was a far cry from where this thing started as a haunted house zombie film wow this is getting further and further if george romero hadn't gotten fired he would have walked away by this point he would have never made or been interested to make a movie like this but that is not to say that i can't take the movie that anderson is giving me and recognize that for what it is 
and I'm not sure it's much more than a rehash of The Matrix, it's pretty gripping. And, you know, watching Mia flip and sever heads. That, I think when she busts out the samurai swords, that it really, it, it brings back a level of violence that I felt like the last couple were missing. Yeah, I like it when these go R-rated, you know? I'm reminded again of, like, the Blade series. You've got people in black leather decapitating others. I'm just glad to see an R-rated level of violence. This is not going to push boundaries in storytelling, so at least give me something more than a Transformers movie, and this does in terms of gore. Now, Alice Prime, as we're going to call her, the original, the one that we are supposed to care about, the clones can die, and they do, and, and that's okay. I thought she was the only one that had psychic powers. They have been able to clone her, and she's superhuman in all of her cloned iterations? Because th these clones are pulling Firestarter moves here. I think they were all injected, and because it's her DNA, they all had the power. They just weren't as good as her, which is why they all die. My question, and I don't know that we're ever going to get this answered, but Alice Prime, is she a clone? Let's keep in mind, in part two, Alice looked pretty dead after that helicopter crash, and then she woke up in a clone bubble and escaped, but is there a real Alice? Wesker is going to say, I finally get to meet the real Alice. So the movie's telling us it is, but how does even Alice know? <laughs> You know, I think it's the lesson of Alien Resurrection is that when you stop making it Ripley and making it a clone of Ripley, people just, there's a clone bias. So we need to believe that this is the flesh and blood with a soul, original Alice, or we just won't care as much. I just keep waiting for that rug to be pulled out. I just keep waiting for Wesker to go, you think you're Alice? You, how do you, Alice died in the helicopter crash. I'm just waiting for it. Meet evil Alice. Maybe oh, we'll get yeah. that in the new film. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I asked that question myself a few times and it just to go along with the movie, I had to tell myself that Alice Prime is the original Alice or else, like Stuart said, I don't know that I could care. Yeah. I mean, it, it helps. And it, it's video game nature that, you know, your character dies at some point and then you reboot and then you start, but you're still the same character. I think that's what the clones kind of do. It, it allows you to play different lives and, and see those deaths while at the very end of it, once they're finally done and the base is destroyed and all of that, we can get back to a character that we would not want to see blown up, at least theoretically. And she's got the upper hand. She's got the gun to Wesker. And that doesn't stop him from stabbing her in the neck. All her superpowers, if that had been a knife, game over. <laughs> but he wasn't aiming to kill her. He was aiming to inject her with something to stop her T-cells and return her to normal. So he could then kill her. Right. <laughs> I guess he, he had to take away her powers before she would become mortal? Yes. Uh, he could not possibly overpower her if she had her superpowers. So he depowered... It's basically... Kryptonite doesn't kill Superman. Kryptonite weakens Superman, and then you can shoot him. Right. But my question is, how much of this is actually because of the T-cells, and how much is it because she's Alice? Because she's still kicking ass well after this point. Mm. Yeah, I noticed no difference. And she was in the first two movies, if you keep in mind. She didn't become enhanced 
until movie three. No, she was enhanced in movie two. At, only at the she end. She was jumping over fences and yeah, she was definitely doing stuff. Yeah, she's supposed to be like a highly trained but human specialist. But in part three, she became psychic and telekinetic. Remember, she went up against the tyrant and he tried to strangle her. Yeah, and... she made satellites blow up with her mind. Yeah. yeah. Burning birds. So now she's just back to being a ninja, but not superpowered, not indestructible, which she kind of was before, which d still does not answer how she lived through this plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> she is merely Trinity. She is not Firestarter. Okay, uh, whatever. She's not an X-Man. Yeah, that plane goes into the side of a mountain pretty hardcore, and apparently both of them end up walking away from it, unbeknownst to one another. I'm just so happy between this movie and I also saw Sully this week to know that an airplane will tell a pilot, terrain, terrain. <laughs> there's consistency there that makes me feel better that a pilot just won't not notice <laughs> but this is the end of the clones huh so the, all of that what i imagine could be a storyline that they would carry on it'd be too expensive right to have that much mia is too many millions they just they can't keep doing those uh, for every scene plus it would get really confusing so the clones are all dead plus it takes away the ability to respawn as you would say, you know, now you're down to your last life, so make this count. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tension. Not something I'm experiencing in this movie, but whatever. Okay, yes. I don't ever worry for this character, whether she'll make it or not. I don't only think that, but my belief was at the end of part three, how the hell do you tell a compelling story with so many Alice's? And I think that's something Anderson Sharon in the commentary is like, yeah, I made her too powerful. We're supposed to be telling horror movies here, and how can you possibly fear for a super ninja that has got a million clones? So we need to take her back, take her human, make her able to be killed again, put her in danger again, and make it just her. So as illogical as it may be that every clone happens to be killed in a single explosion at a single base, every last clone happened to be in there, and the real Alice was hanging out on a plane, it's convenient storytelling, and it does sort of reboot this series back to where we were with the first film, where she is alone, she doesn't know anybody, and she really is, for the first time, a woman without a mission, kind of lost, she said goodbye, and she wasn't going with that group to Alaska previously, but now Wesker is crashed in an airplane, presumed dead, I guess, and so she's going to somehow go from a crash to another airplane, get right back on yeah. that horse, and fly to Alaska. <laughs> I'm glad she's not going to let that yeah, fear of crashing uh, inhibit her in any way. Yeah, she's going to, we're told it's six months later, and she's going to go find her friends and see if they did make it to Alaska, see if indeed there is a haven there. And Arcadia, I didn't pick up on that last time, but that's a pun, right? Uh, arcade games, Arcadia, that's the mecca. Yeah, that was kind of what I took it as. It's also, though, I did Google this. It is um, Greek myth for a place in harmony with nature, so I think it's got a dual purpose. And the helicopter made it there. She finds it. Somehow they must have stopped for a couple more tanks of gas. I'm not sure. Maybe <laughs> Portland or something. But they did finally get to Alaska in that helicopter. I would have never guessed those 30 people, Kmart and all, crammed in there. But... <laughs> Yeah, I was really confused by this moment. It's kind of a Planet of the Apes, you know, spy the beach. Where did all these people go? We're expecting to find out some turn of events. 
and a feral woman comes running by and there's an, a, a fight scene. Alice, of course, wins. I'm like, oh, I had seen in the credits that Sienna Gilroy was coming back. I'm like, oh, it's Jill Valentine. And then, you know, she rips this spider off of her and says, you knew me back in Vegas. And I'm like, oh, it's Kmart. It wasn't until like five minutes later when they're in the plane heading to L.A. that she's like, all right, I'll tell you your name. It's Claire Redfield. I'm like, who? So you didn't watch Heroes and you haven't caught up on those Final Destination movies. I don't know who she is. And I barely remember Claire. She was a non-factor. I think she had one scene where she was kind of bitching about how she didn't want to go to Alaska. And that's all I remember about her from the last movie. I'm right there with you. I did not recognize her. And that, when when she said Claire, I was like, oh, okay. Now I get it. I really recognized her. But I was deep into Heroes for the one year it was good. I've watched both of the Final Destination movies with her in it. And I think she has a unique look. She's always got this look like somebody farted really badly near her and that (laughs) expression never goes off her face. (laughs) Her nostrils always just turned up a little bit. I thought you meant her physical beauty, but you're actually saying she's got a nose crinkle. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, and just this unpleasant look with her mouth slightly agape and just this always distant stare. So she's, it's not just that she's in a Resident Evil 4. She looks like this all the time, you're saying? Yeah. So okay. I recognized her immediately. Plus, Claire is a character from the games who I knew. So no, I... And I'll tell you, we'll get to Sienna Gilroy, but I didn't recognize her in this movie mm, at no, all. No, we'll talk about yeah, that no. reveal as well. <laughs> when she finally does arrive, I had to dig deep to figure out what was going on. But yeah, here is Claire with an amnesia story because it's a Resident Evil movie and somebody has to not know what's going on. It's one that's never really fleshed out. By the end, does she have her memory back? I think. I, nobody yeah. really cares, including Paul W.S. Anderson is what I take. Yeah, this character doesn't even matter. What's more important is that we're going to meet her brother. Conveniently, they're going to fly to the last bastion in L.A. It's a a skyscraper prison. Didn't know that existed here. Either skyscrapers or prisons of this style. Surrounded by zombies with not even really an airstrip on the roof. But they do have a rope and somehow Alice kind of crashes there. And that'll be our location where we meet the more important characters. Now that landing... Very cool in 3D. And the rope thing, yeah, I mean, that's how they land on aircraft carriers. That's the only reason they don't go off in the ocean. I thought that was kind of a cool device they used there. I'm not sure that anything on that roof could have actually held an airplane, nor do I think an NBA player could slam dunk to stop the plane from going off. Counteract the weight of the engine. (laughs) I got to say, I'm enjoying this entire scene. I mean, this is where a lot of the budget is going to go on screen. And I know it's just a bunch of CGI, but it's nice to see this franchise start to feel a little bigger. You know, we've been confined in an underground bunker in the first one and the second one. We're in, you can tell, just dark set streets that don't feel like a real city. And now we're actually feeling much larger, I feel like. You can actually see downtown LA in shambles. Buildings with windows knocked out. The Hollywood sign is on fire and and crumbling. I, I, I just like the way that this kind of expands the, the feel of this movie so far. Yeah, you know, here's the funny thing is they've turned what usually is a criticism of mine on its head. That Usually when I see this, I call it Gerard Butler bullshit. It's just like a bunch of CGI nonsense that doesn't have any kind of authenticity. But 
again, keeping in mind that this is video games and, you know, Arcadia and, and the stylization of the characters, when we have the moments where, like, there's this huge tracking shot, we go down the, the side of the building while people are lighting torches and looking out and all of that. It looks very hokey, but at the same time, I can imagine, A, it would look good in 3D, and B, if it looks like too much CGI, well, that's the world. It kind of, like, works in the way that Sin City does. Its artificialness is sort of what they're selling here. And so I kind of feel like I'm watching an animated movie with semi-real-life people in it. You went to Sin City. My go-to for this whole movie is Zack Snyder. It looks like Sucker Punch. It looks like Watchmen. And it plays out like Dawn of the Dead. So where instead of being holed up in a mall, they're holed up in a prison, and you've got the various people infighting. I think that for once, Anderson has turned his sights off of Cameron and been like, I want to be the guy who made Sucker Punch. Now, see, I thought it was Alien 3, you know, the prison planet, the, the lack of high technology, although there is an arsenal at one point. They, there's no way they're not going to give these people weapons, but the idea of torches and that there are characters who may have committed crimes. I think perhaps the most interesting character they have, although he doesn't remain that way for long, is that there's this Hannibal Lecter who is in a glass cell deep in the basement they have the key to let him out, but they're just not sure whether his story adds up. He's either a SWAT team member that was thrown in there by prisoners as a joke that as they were escaping, they're like, oh yeah, let's imprison this guy. Or he was someone so bad he had to be separated from all the other prisoners. And if you let him out, he could be even worse than the zombies. Yeah, not not a bad device. You know, I mean, it like you said, it builds a little bit of interest in this character, and I suppose it's it's a little bit better than just having yet another person hanging about that's yeah. going to turn out to be a brother to one of our other <laughs> characters, which is just... What? <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, the- in the game, Chris Redfield is one of the first characters you play, and in Resident Evil 2, you play Claire, who's looking for her brother. Her big thing is always, oh. like, trying to catch up to her brother, who's always like a step ahead and so she's in there fighting zombies and trying to reunite so that was going to actually be the plot for claire in the last movie but it turned out there was too much going on so they just dropped the whole brother thing and gave claire nothing to do yes and now it's just a wild coincidence that- <laughs> mm. yeah they didn't come here because they were looking for him they came here and lo and behold he's still alive in this cell in this way she has amnesia and never comes down to visit so they don't find this out for much later in the movie but boy that's not the most interesting thing you could do with this character he will eventually be let out Alice will make the decision okay we need him he thinks he knows a way to get to the Arcadia ship that's in the dock so unfortunately I guess his story is true. He was just a SWAT team member that was wrongly imprisoned. He sure doesn't know how to tell a story well, because he's always got the killer eyes when he's like, yeah, let me out, please. You know, they've got the Hannibal Lecter lights on the pupils so that he always looks like he's got these glowing evil eyes. Yeah, I mean, outside of this just being a device for them to have a different type of character than just somebody else in the prison. You're right. He could have simply said, instead of like holding it over their head, let me out and I'll show you a way out of here. He could have said, look, I know this place. There's an awesome tank in a garage just outside of here. 
We can get out of here. Let me out. I know how to drive it. Let's go. You know, they would have trusted him then. I feel they don't play this to any purpose. I would have actually liked a movie where you do have Hannibal Lecter running around. We kind of saw it in Predators or something, but you have a psychopath among you. Who's the more dangerous? The zombies or the killer, but you need to form an alliance with the killer. It's a trope. I mean, we've seen it, but... I would have liked that as an added thing here if you're going to have a guy in a cell. You could still have had the brother there. Do we need everybody we have outside of the cell? No, a lot of them are just body count. But the way they play it out here, they let him out of the cell and nobody looks at him twice. He's now just part of the group. And <laughs> it's Alice single-handedly saying we're letting him out. Everybody's like, no, don't do it. And then nobody's afraid of this guy. It's really played poorly. I think you just said something bigger there, though, is that, you know, we've seen something like this before. I think that is the conceit of this entire series, <laughs> is that all of this feels like you've seen it before, so there's really no reason to explore any of it any deeper. Let's just keep moving, is kind of the marching orders. But of course, the, a more creative person would be like, we need to, we're competing. They've done it this way before. We need to put a twist on it, a spin on it. We need to do it in a different way. I think we all would have appreciated them doing something with him. I think ultimately, you know, this is Wentworth Miller, who starred for many years on Prison Break. I think that was as much as they thought about. We need a prisoner. He was on this popular show. And I think he was a, a likable character in that. I think he was the guy with the tattoo of the prison on his body. I, it's shorthand for saying you'll like this guy because you've liked him as a prisoner and other things. He actually said on the bonus features he turned down this role and thought somebody was pranking him. He's like, wait, you want me in this movie where I'm a guy in a prison saying I know the way out? Yeah, <laughs> I just did that for a season. Let me tell you, at the Comic-Con panel, everyone else was smiling and waving at the audience. Neo was just like, everything's great. I love you guys. Woo! This guy looked like he wanted to crawl under the table. He seemed really weirded out by the crowd. He, I think there's some expectation about the character he's playing. I don't know what it is, but fans were just excited to know that this Chris Redfield was in the movie. And I think maybe he was worried that he wasn't delivering the character as they know it from the game. Yeah, Chris Redfield, like I said, he was one of the characters you could play in the very first game. He plays in several of the games. Um, and I don't know that people have this expectation. Anderson says that too. Like, we have to live up to what people know from the game. I'm like, what you know from the game is I play him. He does what I tell him to do, and every so often he speaks in stilted English. So, uh, okay, there's not a whole lot to live up to. Does this guy look like the character? Not really, but I'm still going with it. He's a SWAT team member. In the game, he's a STARS team member. It's fine. It's a huge coincidence that the brother and sister are there, and that's not the goal. Roll out, right? <laughs> yeah, and... And beyond him knowing of a feasible way to break out of here, he also knows the lay of the prison, and he knows that there's an armory that they're going to need to get to if they want to have any chance of being armed on their way out of here. So that takes us to, I guess, the next video game challenge level, which is basically what all this is. It's just scene to set up the next level of trying to survive moving through. Did either of you get really, really fucking confused as to what was going on here? Because Chris is saying, okay, we have to get to this place in order to escape. We have to swim through this because it's all flooded. 
They never swim back. They end up on the roof. I'm like, wait, I thought they were escaping. What is going on? And finally realized he's swimming just to get guns so they can escape. And then they find an air shaft that he never knew about so they don't have to swim back through and instead, I guess, shimmy up to the roof. But the whole reason for this level, as you would say, Justin, confounded me. I think it's this simple. We need something for Alice and these characters to be doing so that the more nefarious survivor can be getting away on the roof. We have a bad guy. We have a Burke, if you will. Bennett is a movie producer, which I guess must be some kind of Anderson stick in the crawl that nobody likes a boss. And this would be the boss on the set of a Resident Evil movie. A movie producer that is going to take this two-seater plane, uh, kill one of the other characters, Angel. I don't know if any of these other characters matter that much, but shoot somebody, flies away, leaves his intern behind, and if Alice were there, you know she wouldn't have allowed that to happen. But because she's down swimming around with zombies, that gives her an excuse for, you know, not being there when their only ride, their only way to Arcadia is taken away from them. But they weren't ever planning on using the plane. They were going to use this anti-personnel vehicle or whatever in order to drive over the zombies. Bennett, all right, he's a wonderful little snidely character in the background, sarcastic, demanding. He's got his own personal assistant. I watched enough seasons of the Anna Nicole Smith show to see how Hollywood people treat their personal assistants. So I was going with all of this. I think it's a strange character turn where just out of nowhere he has a pistol and shoots the mechanic angel and no angel doesn't matter we're supposed to care about luther we're supposed to care about chris but yeah angel you're meat yeah i mean i think we do care about luther i mean i think he ends up showing he at least has star power he's going to make it to the end of the film but then we have just crystal waters who is swimming with alice and blink and you won't even notice her getting grabbed what was the point of her going other than to be in there and we failed to mention zombies got in the facility while alice was showering this is the first time alice actually doesn't get naked in a movie she was prepping to shower she was being watched by pervy wendell and he's not going to live too long because a zombie's going to bust in from the ground. They were, I guess, pulling a Lovecraft, rats in the walls. He's been hearing sounds in the walls, and it's the zombies just tunneling in. Pretty efficiently as well. I mean, I'm not sure how they could do that much digging or know where they're going, but... <laughs> Maybe they're just tunneling everywhere. There's just like gopher holes all around LA now. Uh, is it have something to do with the way they've changed the zombies? I know they always want to mix it up, give us something we haven't seen before. This is the first time I'm noticing that faces are splitting apart and squiddy tentacles now. that is this a factor for being able to breathe underwater or something? Why are they doing this? Well, they're dead, so I think they don't breathe at all. I think that's why they can be underwater. As far as the squid face thing goes, I thought it was just a ripoff of Blade 2, but... I guess that they did this in the video games. The zombies started getting the tentacles out of the mouth. The dogs started having their heads split. Anderson wanted to do something new and saw in Resident Evil 4 and 5, they'd done new stuff with this type of character. They 
moved away from kind of just the shambling zombie and moved more to military zombies and monstrous squid zombies and that. And so he brought it in here for that as well. This is something I do remember from the video games, and I couldn't tell you exactly which one, but that definitely sticks out in my mind is those, I call them face bloomers, you know, because it's very almost plant-like yet has very reptilian type of feel to it as well. And yeah, I mean, that thing and the the dog splitting in half and having that same feel and this new boss character, which we're about to see, that has absolutely no origin story, just comes out of nowhere. He's just a giant human being with a giant axe. But I remember fighting against him in the game, so... All right, I guess that's a good enough origin for this movie. Yeah, I remember fighting against him in the game, too. Silent Hill, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Except he had a big triangle on his head there, yeah. right? Here, yeah, he is in <laughs> Resident Evil 5, and he had a point there as an executioner. Here, well, Anderson just liked the look. So why is he here? Because Anderson liked the look and thought it would be cool and... Let's just insert him. And is he sent by the Red Queen? Is he sent by Sienna Guillory? Is he sent by Wesker? Is he just here? Hey, you know, we did just review the Reanimator series. Maybe it's Arnold's stunt double who's been juicing and then got bit. (laughs) The point is he takes down the gate. The one thing that was keeping all the zombies at bay, except the ones that were tunneling under and swimming around in the half-flooded part of the building. I don't know. It's, you know, they talk out of both sides of their mouth as far as whether people have already infiltrated the Citadel or not. But he definitively takes down the thing that was holding back the hordes, and now they can swarm. Now they have no choice Our heroes have to leave this prison because they're being overrun. And so we get another movie callback. They're on the roof. And yeah, why won't Mia just go Bruce Willis and yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker? Oh, I was so thinking that. And it's so obvious. Who wouldn't? The only thing that I can give it is none of this is real. That's a CGI Mia. That's a CGI roof. Bruce Willis said a stunt double had to do that shit for real, and this just is a really good simulation. <laughs> oh, but the effects here look so hokey. I mean, I'm not even talking about how fake it looks. It just, the way her body is almost completely still, but swinging through the air, it just, oh, they almost should have, like, batman it and put a doll on a string and panned way back, <laughs> because it... It was corny looking. Yeah, but I, but it looked better in 3D. I mean, I again, every time I see effects like this, I'm like, the fact that she is so differentiated from the rest of what's happening in the screen must be what makes it pop. And so I think it would just be exciting to see it come at you. And truthfully, it looked amazing in 3D. And when I saw it in 2D, I'm like, wow, that looks like shit. <laughs> So, yeah, (laughs) it really does matter. Many moments in this movie come off that way in my 2D version. But again, I just write it off as video game. It's it's, just think of it as an homage to the way that video game play looks. Have you guys noticed that up to this point, being bitten and turned into a zombie is no longer really a device being used? It's either you get caught and you die and that's it or you continue on. In the last few movies, it was like, ooh, don't get bitten because our friends are going to turn or whatever. That's just kind of been dropped. Yeah, I feel like it's moved so far away from horror. To me, the a horror scenario has to do with mortality. Will this person live? And now it's just about spectacle. How many people can we pile onto this roof? How do we make it really over the top? Gerard Butler bullshit. Uh, but, you know, they, they will every now and then have a little tweak that's amusing. I do like the fact that we've seen her collecting 
game Quarters, and I, I think that's a video game reference to old coin ops. She actually is using that as ammunition here when she's doing her theatrics. You are putting so much more thought into this than Anderson. He never mentioned, oh yeah, Quarters, video <laughs> games. He's like, I thought that would look cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is why it's important not to always listen to the creator and have your own interpretation. Sometimes the audience knows more than the people making it. And sometimes, you know, maybe it was subconscious reference. Maybe he just doesn't want to tell people then you they can figure it out. Or maybe there's just some serendipity going on. But she does take that back to the shower. They're going to try to escape through there. And this is when the Axeman comes in and... They decide to replay a video game here. Uh, Claire is the hero of Resident Evil 5, and she took down the Executioner. And here, Claire actually gets a moment to shine. Alice is kind of knocked out, and Claire handles this whole fight. I actually, while watching this in 3D, had to be like, wait, is that Alice? Alice gets all the fights. She looks not like Alice, but no, it's actually... Claire is given something to do. Yeah, and it's been about time, really. I mean, she spent the whole last movie with, yes, fart face, as you dubbed it, and why <laughs> wouldn't they want to give her a moment saving another woman? I, I think that's great. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is really where Paul W.S. Anderson lives and breathes, is really aiming his movie at a prepubescent boy. So what do you got? You got an awesome video game boss. You got two chicks fighting him in a shower with water going on over the place. This is a wet dream for a 14-year-old boy. Double meaning for wet. <laughs> We're going to take this entire scene in incredibly slow motion capture. This entire scene plays out so slow. But yet, I think it's kind of cool because a lot of times, you brought up Transformers where in action scenes... Things are going on so fast that I can't even tell what's going on. Here, I'm actually being able to follow the action on screen. So I, I guess I'm part of that 14-year-old boy demographic while the scene's playing. I think you're a little bit hard on the whole pubescent boy thing, though. Because, yes, there is water. But I don't ever feel that, even in the nude scenes in the previous movie, I never feel like the women are objectified in the lens. I don't feel like they're standing there glistening like Maxim models in the water. I feel like, yes, they're wet, and it looks cool, but I think this movie is about kicking ass and not about look at the wet boobies. They are objectified. There's no way around it. Yes, these the, it, the women's hotness is it's a part of it. But no, it's not a Carl's Jr. ad. I mean, they're not like <laughs> having sex with a hamburger kind of uh, eroticism here. It is a, a more natural ticket. I mean, if your comparative is a Michael Bay movie, then no, this is a, a very chaste way of looking at these women. But I think there's always just something about any of the fighters here that they want them to look powerful and i mean it, it, they're photographed to look cool so men women whoever it may be i do think that everyone's objectified well okay but not sexually so i don't find this fight to be sexual i do find it to be cool i think it's a little shitty though now, they give Ollie Lauder her big fight here. She's obviously trained for a lot of stunts. She does some kick-ass moves. And then Alice has to show up at the end to actually kill it. We can't let anybody but Alice get the kill. Yeah. <laughs> 
I will say it is a little bit of a bummer that we don't get a little bit of naked Mia here because she's looking pretty good, you know? What are we, eight years on from the original? She's aging pretty well at this point. I'll, I'll give her that. Yeah, and still, I assume, doing all the stunts. I mean, these things look complicated. I don't feel like they've tailored it so that like she has to do less. Or maybe they're deferring to a really good lookalike. But I feel like we're getting the same caliber of action, maybe even a little bit better than what we've had in previous movies. Listen, Mia is getting work with other directors, and she's not getting it for her Oscar-winning acting chops. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a 21st century Cynthia Rothrock. Let's go with it. And they go with it. Uh, we lose uh, the intern. He gets cut in half, but everyone else is making it through the tunnels. We get a little bit of a descent, maybe, if people know that movie. Love that movie. It's covered in our book. Girls climbing through a really tight, gooey tunnel. And Luther, we we think that the black guy might have died. Um, the token character is disappears it's kind of inconclusive but something all of a sudden rocks just suddenly appear and plug up the hole and and we think that uh, yet another character is gone we'll be wrong he'll turn up in the end a little bit of a callback to the first movie where one of our members was left for dead but then found an escape wow you remember the first movie wow good job (laughs) and i thought they'd go that way i thought he'd come back heroically we did not see him killed so i knew he wasn't dead we've seen blood with every death he's just pulled back Uh, the fact that they just have him show up at the end to be like misa not dead all right (laughs) <laughs> I'm too charismatic to die. Yeah. <laughs> he hey, he is. He's a hunky NBA watch model. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I worked on a show with Boris and yeah, all the women were checking him out. He definitely has a very big following. He, all his career, the, everything else that he's doing, he is always in romantic comedies and being the object of desire. Yeah, I mean, definitely a attractive man who I would feel like a troll standing next to. But we get down to only the Redfields and Alice finally escaping by boat. And they get to the Arcadia. And, you know, they've said this whole time. We don't see anyone on the deck. Why aren't they coming to rescue us? Why isn't the boat moving? If you haven't guessed it's a derelict by now, you really should stay in prison. Yeah, they're all there. They have some kind of uh, way of seeing that 2,000 survivors exist below ground, but can't be seen. And it looks like the producer got there as well. We see that the plane has kind of smashed on the surface, but he would have survived that, and we should at least see a body, but he's gone too. It's a big mystery building up to, surprise, Umbrella. Boy, they just aren't going to drop this. I guess I have to just give up on the fact that I do not care about corporate malfeasance after the world has fallen into chaos. That is just not important at this point. It bugs me so badly. It was amplified by our conversation last week. But all of a sudden, I'm like, what is your hope? There's no humans left to sell your products to. What are you trying to do? What is your business model here? I, what mm-hmm. is going on? What is your attempt here? I guess in this case, he has a very personal motivation. To survive or whatever, Wesker has injected himself with the T-cells, but... The only person to successfully bond with these T-cells is Alice. And since he is having trouble bonding with them, if he consumes Alice, and I don't know if that means like he's going to swallow her like a snake with his mouth tentacles or what ingest means, but somehow that will merge her DNA with his. I don't think I merged with the DNA of the steak I ate tonight, 
but it will merge their DNA, and then he thinks he will be able to control the virus. So maybe it's not just business, but he just wants to survive, and to do so means consuming Alice. Yeah, I just don't feel like he's a very threatening end boss. I mean, maybe none of them are really that great when I really think about it. I don't think there's ever been one at the end that really blew me away, but they usually go big, and... They get a couple zombie dogs here, too. And Bennett. He's sort of a henchman. Uh, they're trying for an ending. That was a real quick turn from, I'm a producer. I can do anything. Yes, sir. I'm your slave, sir. Again, I have to believe Anderson just wanted to get that dig in. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure if we were supposed to believe Bennett was now somewhat zombified. Because they had makeup on him for a while that made him look really green and pale mm -hmm. and almost bloodshot eyes. Or is that just because he was in a wreck? Oh, yeah. He's turned for sure. He is? Yeah. See, later he looks a little more healthy than that, though. Yeah, I thought he was just, like, making a bargain that if he works for Wesker, Wesker gets him out. I did not think he turned. I did not think there was mind control or zombifying or anything. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's not an interesting enough character for me to even debate it. But I thought the makeup was telling me that he was no longer human. Yes, at the beginning there. But then later on, like I said, it, it's not entirely clear that that's what's going on. But like you said, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Could be rewriting. I mean, who knows? I, it, this strikes me as the kind of ending where they might have rethought themselves a couple different times and shot it in different ways. I'm, I don't know why they ever think that they can kill the bad guy just by like shooting and stabbing him either. I mean, that becomes quite monotonous. Maybe we just get the jollies of watching the gymnastics, but there's no way to defeat them by karate kicking them hard enough. It's just not going to happen. But she knocks his sunglasses off and we see his demonic red eyes. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that 3D with the sunglasses spinning at us. I mean, again, a lot of this is for maximum 3D impact. And I did. I wish I was watching it in the format. I do feel like I missed out. Uh, I would have probably been more engaged with this climax. A little, anyway, if there was that component. It was so clearly made for well, in this final fight scene, I mean, if the beginning was, you know, a little bit Matrixy, this is straight out of the Matrix. I mean, we've get bullet time, we get slow motion, kung fu, it's all there. And like you pointed out earlier, Stuart, this is 10 years late. Yeah, I laughed out loud while watching the bonus features where he's like, I told my special effects people what I wanted to do. And they're like, you just can't do that. I'm like, can you just call up the Wachowskis because they'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know. Again, this series, I have never seen them innovate. I have never seen them go in a direction. And that's hard to do. I mean, few people do. Most things are a riff on other things you've seen. But here, it's blatant. It doesn't feel like they're even trying to put their own stamp on it. If you like Paul W.S. Anderson as a director, it's because you like the things that he likes. You like his taste. Now, I know as a group, we're not, you know, totally sold on the idea of Umbrella and, you know, having their corporate fangs and everything all the time. But I will say it works as a good device, at least visually, because we go from, you know, the wreckage of L.A. and this prison crumbling down around them to this ship that as soon as this door opens, we are in almost a sci-fi universe. And it's a, such a visual tonal shift that I think it works as a great way of visually saying, hey, here is the third act. Let's go. It's so white. I thought it was a few years late again because it was making me think once again of I'm a Mac and I'm a PC ads. 
Oh, and, and Matrix. Again, that was a... They, I don't remember the rooms. Or there's like hallways where they would walk into these kinds of places. and Yeah, the weapons room and everything. You're right. That is all very Matrix. All of this imagery is, yeah, eight years past the sequels nobody liked. So I'm not sure what can be really said about them. I don't feel like they improve on them. But at the same time, I don't see Alice eating a chocolate cake and having a queef. So, I mean, you know, they, they, don't, they, they take what worked about it and they don't take what didn't work about those Matrix sequels. Maybe that's what Allie Lauder's been smelling the whole time. <laughs> Maybe. Now, almost made it through an entire Resident Evil movie without having the hounds of hell. But nope, there's a pair of dogs here to help us out. I turned it on the commentary at the very end because I really wanted to understand the last images that we see. I had no idea what it was, but I did hear him mention that this was one of the two notes that he got. That Anderson, for the most part, they loved everything he was doing, but they're like, you've got to put the dogs in here. And so they just kind of stuck them in. It was just sort of like, well, there's no real reason why we, he would have two pet zombie dogs, but we need them because it's not a Resident Evil movie without them. And it very much played like that. Correct. Spoiler alert, the next movie doesn't have any dogs. What? Huh. Yeah, he was he was tired of them now, but yeah, the head splitting was something they'd done in the games, and it looks really cool in the games. And so he decided to at least do that here so we have something new with them. And... They're just not as cool as they were the very first time. I'm sorry. Doberman's wearing lunch meat were scarier than the CGI split heads. Yeah, I mean, and also it was newer back then, and it was still a little bit more organic and less in a sci-fi realm. Now it's just, you know, straight up video gameness, and it really doesn't offer much of a fear-driven type of factor for anybody here. I mean, nobody's scared of these dogs. But when Alice kicks that glass in th- midair and it comes right at me in 3D, looked awesome. Yeah, and it is Alice's fight. I mean, they do have the brother and sister kind of, they're there as an assist. They'll like throw a gun or do one or two little things, but then they'll get, you know, stuck in a pod and sucked underground or something. Kmart pops up too, I think. Literally, she pops out of the ground. Yeah. So there are these, you know, assistants, kind of like a magician's assistant. They come out and hand the prop that Alice needs to do the fighting. But anything really cool is only going to be done by Mia. Well, Chris and Claire are going to pop up at the very end to shoot the crap out of Wesker. They both kind of stood around during the fight. But it's kind of like that friend who won't get in a fight, but once you've beaten somebody up, he'll kick them while they're down. The two Redfields decide (laughs) to shoot the hell out of Wesker. Yeah, but it doesn't do anything. I mean, this guy's still leaving, trying to think that I'll I'll just do my detonate trick again and blow up the ship. We've already mentioned, you mentioned it in the plot summary, I have nothing to add to it. But ha ha ha, somehow, some way, Alice or somebody uh, knew enough to get ahead of him and, yeah, stuck it on the ship. So we can presume that Wesker's dead until the next movie. And we can presume that the producer is dead. Did Wesker kill him? That's my guess, because he turns around and he's like upset at seeing something that we don't see. And then we hear him scream. I'm guessing that he saw a zombie Wesker or something. Oh, I didn't. You know what? I didn't even care. Um, I really didn't care about this Bennett character. Nothing that he ever did mattered at all to me. But you're right. There was a noise of his death. I thought they just locked him in a room. I had forgotten that we heard off screen. Maybe they didn't want to spend the money on the effects. But he's dead. So everyone else is being woken up. 
They go up on deck, and the other note that Anderson got was that you can't just end it with Mia giving a radio broadcast saying we are now a ship where you can come for help and hope. You can't end on a positive note. You need to have a cliffhanger with a big pullback and everything you've done for three other movies. So we get the ending we do. This is a hell of a cliffhanger, though. I mean, you've got, what, a thousand people, I think they say, on the ship, And then all of a sudden, these planes that are exactly like the planes Wesker flew start coming in for an attack, and they're being led by Laura Croft? Now, Baroness from G.I. Joe. (laughs) Or Black Widow, I mean, with the unzipped (laughs) skin suit. I had to turn on the commentary. I'm like, I have no idea. What am I supposed to take away from this? I literally, again, I knew that Guillory was in the movie. I'm like, well, that's not Jill. Because Jill doesn't look like that. But no, apparently in the video game she turns evil and this is how she looks. I mean, I was only partly joking that she looks like Baroness. But at this point, Umbrella Corp has turned into Cobra. Yeah. (laughs) I mean. It has. They are strictly just a militarized group of people with some really weird leaders and a whole bunch of henchmen. And some of them happen to be zombies. But yeah, this is where we're left. Is I, I did not know this was Jill. She doesn't look like the same lady from the first movie. It's the same actress. It is, somehow. Yeah. I mean, that actress made no impression anyway. She was a costume while running around. She looks so much better here, though, than she did with that short black hair. And she's also acting better in this one scene. It gives me hope that maybe I won't not like her when we return next time. Okay. But how much did we like it this time? Justin Stewart. Do you recommend Resident Evil Afterlife? Justin. Guys, I have to be honest here. I'm not sure if I'm suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, (laughs) and I'm just starting to empathize with my captor here, but (laughs) I think what it comes down to with this series, if a movie that I'm watching now isn't actively pissing me off, (laughs) I guess I'm going to be okay with it, you know? I mean, I think we learned a few movies back Not to ask too many questions, not to try to tie too many things together, and just go with the flow. And if you can enjoy the action scenes when they come, then I guess what we're doing here isn't totally in vain. So, at the end of the day, I'm watching this movie, and to me, I feel like it is an improvement over the movies that's come before it. You know, the CGI is getting better, the action is getting better. Sure, it's all derivative from somewhere else, but as long as we're in this world... And they're improving on what we've seen before. And I've sat back here and I've mildly recommended previous installments. I would feel like an ass if I sat here and said, nope, this one is a not recommend. So from that standpoint, I'm going to give it another mild recommend. Especially if you've made it this far. If you've made it past the desert and Vegas and stuff like that. This is at least getting to a point where you can enjoy the mindless action that is going on in front of you. Backhanded recommend if ever there was. Stuart. (laughs) Is there any other to give for this series, though? Mindless action. Exactly. In those words, you're telling me, oh, I don't want to see that. I mean, I know myself to know I would have no interest in this series. So I have to take the Fast and Furious approach. I have to say this is a series in which I would never want another installment and don't want to be watching the one that's coming at me. But that's not to say that it is poorly made or that there isn't something that I can get out of it. And I do think having lowered expectations 
really does help me. I mean, I thought that there would be no more Green Arrows after the first one, which was a pretty weak Green Arrow. But yeah, I think this rivals the first film for best of the series. I think if you're going to take it on its own terms, Anderson is delivering exactly what he can do. And maybe even his script is, you know, it doesn't have the mystery of the first movie, but I expected less out of his storytelling this time. And I think that just helps. So I was able to focus on the only things that he really can do. And he does a good job with those moments and those rehashes. It's kind of a hated movie. I mean, if you look at the IMDb score, if you hear the grumbling, I get the sense that people really dog this film, but I do think it's an afterlife. I do think it is a series that has been reborn. And again, I don't want to see the next one, but it may not be so bad. Mild Green Arrow. I never would have thought when I woke up this morning that Afterlife would be getting three recommends, but that is the case. And <laughs> oh boy. you know what my existential crisis was is this did look great and it was filmed with the Avatar cameras and I didn't recommend Avatar. And so I can't just stand here and go, well, it looks cool and that's enough. So I had to think, why do I like this movie more than Avatar? And truthfully, one of this movie's biggest benefits is it's short. Avatar so wore out its welcome with its hackneyed plot. This hackneyed plot flies by in just over 90 minutes. And it does have good action, if not good acting. I like the set design and the look and this whole... I compared it to Zack Snyder, but at times I think Zack Snyder has a good eye as well. I liked his style for Watchmen. I kind of liked the surreality occurring in this world. The plot was just enough, and I can't rule out the characters. We've talked a bit about Mia Jovovich, and I think she's kind of fun now that she's not super-powered. Allie Larder's never going to be one of my favorites, but... Wentworth Miller as Redfield, I thought he was pretty good. I really loved Boris as Luther West. I claimed that Oded Fair had some on-screen charisma, but Boris steals the screen. I think he's a lot of fun. I'd like to see a Resident Evil spinoff just starring Luther. He's that good. He just brought an energy that this series has never had. A character who smirks. <laughs> it's amazing. There's a sign of life in these dead, dead actors. Be fun on screen. I'm not asking you to perform Othello here. Just look like you're having a reasonably good time so that I can have a reasonably good time. Oded Frere did that, and Boris did that. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who doesn't look miserable up there and make me miserable looking at you, Allie. Okay. And I liked the producer character. I thought he was a fun, snidely whiplash in here. I liked, I don't understand his character turns, but I just liked him. He reminded me a lot of that movie producer from True Romance, only even stupider and a lot of fun. Yeah, this is a mild recommend. It's a fun time, but definitely in 3D. Definitely Definitely in 3D. Now, you've been having a good time for a lot of this. I don't, I'm wondering what's going to, you basically just didn't like the bird one. But other than that, <laughs> I, you've been riding this whole series, having some kind of fun, doing flips over something or another. So you must be keyed up to do Retribution then. Oh, yeah. I, well, I'll tell you, it's Retribution that got me back into it. Because 
spoiler alert, I saw Michelle Rodriguez was coming back. I saw Odin Fair was coming back. <laughs> I saw... Is Kmart coming back? That's all I care about. Give me some Kmart. <laughs> Sorry, Kmart has now gone to Sears, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> I was excited to see the cast reunion. Anytime you start bringing this together. It happened with Fast and the Furious, and it happened with Resident Evil, both Michelle Rodriguez franchises. I get really excited to see how this all works together and how you bring characters back from the dead. So, yes, I was very excited for Retribution, and when it finally went on sale for $5 in 3D Amazon last year, <laughs> I bought all the Resident Evil movies because that one. You paid $5 you were selling Kung Ho for it. <laughs> it's about the right price. Yeah. But we'll be talking about that next week. And in the meantime, a few show announcements. First of all, if you've ever listened to this show and thought, I really wish I could argue with those guys about the movie. You actually may have a chance. We are casting for a new now playing host. We're looking for a regular to come in and sit down with two of us and talk movies. If that's something that sounds like would be fun for you, if that's something it sounds like you have time to do and you know the kind of time commitments we put in on this, head to VenganzaMedia.com. Right under the logo, there's a Help Wanted banner. Click that. It's going to tell you everything you need to know. But yeah, we're looking for somebody new to sit at the table with us. Are we taking headshots? No, no, uh, no. It, it's an audio podcast, so... Oh, that's right. Eventually there will be audio samples, but uh, we don't do a whole lot of webcamming here. <laughs> Sorry, Miss Leggenkamp. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I definitely hear her demo reel. She's much better to talk to in person than she is to see on the screen. I definitely demo her acting reel. <laughs> And also, if you want to help support this show and keep us growing with things like new hosts, head to our Podbean page. We've set up a crowdfunding thing where you can get some exclusive podcasts, as well as, thanks to Podbean's technology, you can get all of our vaulted podcasts. All of that's available through links from our homepage. So, Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, game over. dreams there would be this many of us left alive so what's next i say we live up to the promise this is arcadia broadcasting on the emergency frequency there is no infection repeat there is no infection we offer safety and security food and shelter if you are out there we will help you there is hope Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Resident Evil Retrospective Series. When I get out of here, I think I'm gonna get laid. Yeah, <laughs> might want to clean up a little bit first. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. I'm missing you already. Would you like to continue? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next week to hear another Resident Evil movie review. One way or another, our world is coming to an end. The question is... Will we end with it? 
and visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives for reviews of other films including Blade, Hellboy, The Shining, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and more. I've been a bad, bad girl. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. For so long, I thought you were the future. I was wrong. (laughs) I am the future. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Good thing we like a challenge. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. I told you I'd be bringing a few friends. You should have brought more. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I always knew you'd be drawn to your friends. Insert coins to keep playing. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I didn't think any of you would make it this far. Not without infection. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Everyone is grateful for you helping us out. We really are grateful. You can also support our show and get dozens of bonus movie reviews. But I can offer you something you want very much. What is that? For Now Playing's 10th anniversary, we have opened the vaults. And at our Podbean page, you can donate and get archived movie reviews, including the Night of the Living Dead series, Alien, Return of the Living Dead, Jaws, The Exorcist, Jurassic Park, and more. We're reopening the hive. Links to all these reviews can be found in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives section. Humanity will cease to exist unless you return to the hive. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews. We're going to need more ammo. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to kill you. Perhaps. But first you have work to do. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I can't remember much before all this started. Sometimes I feel like this has been my whole life. Now Playing's Resident Evil series is edited by David, Heath, and Arnie. I don't want to be one of those things walking around without a soul. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. This is what I do. The Resident Evil films and all movie audio and music are the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Hey, boys. Bad idea. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I have no reason to believe a word you say. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I want her quarantined. Close observation. 
and a full series of blood tests. Let's see if she's infected. Take her to the Raccoon City facility. Then assemble the team. I want to know what went on down there. Just do it. And then the next movie was five years later. Oh, I thought it was seven. Okay. I thought it was two for some reason, but let me validate. Uh, five sounds right, but if you're going to look it up. Yeah, you know what? It was five years later. They were keeping it in time with the movie. It came out in 2007. The original yeah, came out in it 2002. Was five. So the, it was five. Yeah. I, I validated in my old notes. Plus, I, I looked it up twice while preparing for the show, but just, no, no, just no, in no. case it I was wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> Stars. I thought it was going to be Mila. I thought that uh, you Mia. Know, they spend a God damn it! I knew I was going to say it wrong. <laughs> I thought it was going to be stars. Mila is just Mia. way too many millions. That meant stars. I would have never guessed those thirty people, Kmart and all, crammed in there. <laughs> you can't stop Kmart unless you're a stockholder. <laughs> <laughs> just let it go, Arnie. Let it go. But stars. You know Mila, what, is it Mila or Mia? It's Mia, right? Mia. Yeah. Stars. I watched enough seasons of... Sons of Anarchy. The Anna Nicole Smith show. Very different. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Stars. Boris Kojo. Is that how you pronounce it? Qu Kojo? Okay, you said you worked with him, so... <laughs> I know, I know. I, he, he had a talk show for a brief moment, and um, he was terrible on it, too. He would just, like, come <laughs> in. He basically did it with his wife, and he would come in and just be like, yeah, honey, whatever you say. He's like, you'd see him in the background, like, eating the food and kind of, like, wandering away with <laughs> interns, right. like, fawning all over him. Can I get you something, Boris? He was just Boris. I, don't, I thought it was Ko uh, Koji. I thought... Okay. Was Maybe I mispronounced it. I mean, it wasn't like I was running and talking to him. Stars.